You're listening to Faith Assembly of God Online, a recording of our weekly service. Thanks for joining with us, a place where hope and reality converge. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to Matthew chapter 5, where we're going to begin. And uh, we'll be looking at a uh, uh, Old Testament scripture as well, a little later in uh, Numbers 20. But we'll start in Matthew chapter 5 today as we take a look at God's Word, His life-giving Word. Aren't you thankful for the Word of God? Raise your hand if you've ever been in love. Uh, Some wives had to help their husbands. It's this way, this way. You may have even had moments where you were in love or you thought you were in love until you realized what love was, and then you weren't sure that's what you were in for. That love is a process. I, I uh, uh, story, uh, actually, uh, um, God, of course, spent time with Adam. They were walking along the, the garden and spending time together, and God said to Adam, he said, boy, you know, it's not good for you being alone down here. You really need a helpmate. You really need someone to be by your side to help you. And Adam said, you know, God, I think that's a great idea. God said, you know what? I'm going to create a woman for you. I'm going to create the most beautiful, the most beautiful uh, 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 creation you've ever seen. She's going to be so soft, so gentle. She's going to be by your side. She's going to be your strongest supporter. She's going to rub your back at night, rub your feet in the morning. She's going to plop grapes in your mouth. She's going to feed you any meal you could ask for, better you could ever imagine. She's going to care for you. She's going to take care of the home. She's going to meet every need. Anytime you need anything, just call. She'll be there. She will cover every need you'll ever have. Adam said, God, that sounds amazing. How much is that going to cost? God said, well, it's, it's pretty expensive. It's going to cost you an arm and a leg. Adam thought about it for a moment. He said, well, what can I get for a rib? That's advice. That's, advice. That's not a true story, by the way. But what is true is this, that when you really discover love, you realize it costs you something. When you really discover and when you really Walk in what love is all about. That story's not true. But it is true that love does cost you. There is a price that comes with the opportunity of knowing love. For the past number of weeks, we've been discussing this topic, the hashtag love. And uh, we've been talking about what it is. And many of us, uh, we recognize or we have recognized that love is the most popular word hashtagged on social media. But it is the most misunderstood word in our culture. And so for the last six weeks and up to today here, we've been looking at what real love is and what it means to love, what it means, uh, the difference between counterfeit love, the world's perspective of love, and what God's design for love is. We understand that there is a price, there is a cost, and many times we want love, but we we don't expect or we're not prepared for the process of love. We, we want love to account, be, be in our life. We have this innate desire to know love, but then sometimes when we hit the reality that love has a price, there's a cost to walking through and developing love that some people, instead of pursuing real, real love, have forfeited for pretend love or for suffice love or for tolerated love. There's many marriages and many relationships that are not really fulfilling, they're really tolerated. They're not bringing fulfillment in life 
they become a toleration. And sometimes we can get so good at learning how to live with each other. But we've said this before. This has kind of been over the last, uh, I don't know how long it started, but my wife and I made a, a theme for our marriage and for our lives. Let's not get good at living with each other. Let's get good at dying for each other. Let's not just have a marriage that lives with each other because you can have a marriage where you live with it. Or you can have a marriage where you learn how to die for it. And a difference, not a marriage or not, and again, this is not just about marriage, but not just having relationships that are tolerated or, or suffice or, or just gone through that we just get along, but really getting relationships that we really deepen, strengthen, and grow. And how many know that when you deepen and strengthen and grow a relationship, it takes work? Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes there's a price. There's a cost. It's difficult to experience that. 1 John 4.10, the scripture that we've been referring to, says this, this is real love. John's speaking. He says, this is real love. It is not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Recognize there, he said he, he loved us, not that we loved him. This is real love. Not that love that comes because of what it was received, but that he loved us and gave a sacrifice. Recognize here, he puts together that real love is equated to a sacrifice. But you cannot show real love until you've received real love. It's a common theme we've talked about over the last couple of weeks is that you will not be able to give real love until you've received real love. You cannot be a, 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 in a relationship with, with your husband, your wife, that, that uh, uh, fiance or mothers, fathers, whatever relationship, friendship. You'll never be able to love to a greater level until you know the love that comes from God. There's a sacrifice that is involved. Real love comes with a price. And when you look at the love that God has for us, it wasn't in response to our love for him. It was in response to his love for us. Think about this this morning. This is real love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. You realize when he started loving you, it wasn't because you were the most explicit thing he's ever experienced. It wasn't because he looked at you and saw all the grandeur of beauty. He looked at you, and here's reality. He saw sin. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love. Not to love according to what you receive, but to love according to what Christ has put on the inside of you. When I reach a level of loving, not for what I can get, but because I have it inside of me. Now, there's a reality, and we just gotta be honest we can be good at having really good relationships and loving people who are our friends, easy to love, we get along with. But there's another level of love that God wants to, us to experience in life. You see, it's one thing to love people who will give you something in return. It's another thing to love somebody when they don't have anything to offer you. And do you realize that God loved you not because of what you could offer him? Think about it. He didn't love you because, yeah, he wants to use you, yes, but even him using you, it's not because he needs you, it's because he gives you and I that privilege. You realize that today? He doesn't use us because he needs us, he uses us because he affords us that honor and that privilege to be a part of his kingdom, be a part of his work. He used Balaam's donkey to preach or to give a message and to, and to make words say, uh, come about and to use things in that season and in that time. The Bible says all creation is calling out. The Bible says in Romans that because of creation, all man is without excuse. God says because of what I created can speak and has the ability to speak. If people don't worship me, he says I'll cause 
cause rocks to cry out in my name. God says I can use the creation around me, but he desires to use you and I. Not because he needs us, but because he offers us that great privilege and honor of being a part of the work that he wants to do in our lives. He gives us this privilege. He loves us, not for what we could give him. And when you recognize the love that comes from God, let me ask us this question. And I, I know you could quickly give an answer to it, but I don't want you to answer quickly. I want you to think about it. Knowing that love that God has, that he loved not for what he could get in return. He loved because he is love. Is it possible for you and I to love like Jesus? Is it possible for you and I to love like that? Now, I know without a doubt we can, we can easily answer the question to that. Well, of course, we would all say yes, but the danger is to answer so quickly without forgetting to acknowledge what it really means in this process. Can I really love like Jesus? Can I really love, and I gotta be honest with you, I am 17 years into a marriage and I'm still learning how to love without what I can get in return, but because it's just inside of me to love. And some of you might be like, I can't believe you would just admit that. I can't believe you're that perfect. I'm still learning that there are moments I catch myself. No, I need to love not because of how I feel or what I expect or what's going to come. I love because that's who lives inside of me. The spirit of the one who is love lives inside of me. Therefore, I must love the way he loves. God, thank you for your grace for working in me to teach me and to show me and to keep making me to that place so that I can love the way Jesus loves. We can give a quick answer to that question, but being careful that we acknowledge what it is our love and we, we, we recognize that. There are moments I stop and I, I catch myself. I have to be intentional to show points of love that I've detached whatever I can get in return. I have to be intentional to do that. My human nature easily attracts to love and to show love with expressions of what I expect or what I know that I'll receive in return. By human nature, that, that just naturally happens. But I have to intentionally separate myself to a point to love not in light of what I can receive, but in light of I just want to love like Christ. That is not so natural in me. That's not natural in me. Natural in me is to, hey, if you like me, I like you. If you'll be nice to me, I'll be nice to you. You do something to me, well, we won't be nice anymore. That's natural. But the supernatural brings me to a place that says, if you slap me on this cheek, I'll turn and give you the other cheek. If you take my coat, I'll give you the other coat. If you tell me to go one mile, I'll go two miles. That's supernatural. That's not natural. That's a whole different level that God calls us to love to, to come to a place. Real love comes with a price. Today we're concluding this series, this hashtag love, and our topic this morning is this, loving the hard to love ones. Have you ever been around somebody who's hard to love? Please nod, don't point. <laughs> Have you ever been around somebody, it's just, it's hard to love them. You know, when they come around, it's, it's like, you know, you don't hear the birds whistling and the, and the, you know, things around you. It's a, you know, all of a sudden there's some eerie music in the background. <laughs> mm. Little jaws. You got your eyes on them because loving the hard to love people in our life. There was a kindergarten teacher. She had made it a practice. Uh, her, her, uh, 
her usual look. She always wore her hair straight, but one day she had a, had a different desire, and she went to the salon and got a perm. And so this kindergarten teacher came to school the next day with her, with her hair, and she has a new look, and she's in the classroom, and there's this one little boy looking at her. And the way the boy's looking, the teacher knew there was something wrong. And so the, the teacher looks at the boy and says, uh, you know, what's the matter? Something's wrong. He said, yeah, your hair. The teacher looks and said, oh yeah, just yesterday I went and I got my hair permed and I love it. The little boy said, but did you see it? <laughs> I can't imagine that boy became teacher's pet that week, you know? If there were special privileges handed out, I'm not sure he was at the front of the line to receive those things. You and I know what it is in life to have those experiences where someone either says something or does something or just sometimes even remind us of things that we don't like or that are uncomfortable to us and they become hard to love people in our lives. They're people that either what they've done, they, they may, have, may have created an, a, a situation and these hard to love people come with reason. You don't usually not love somebody without reason. You connect a reason to it. And sometimes the reason is injustice. We look and it becomes hard to love somebody because they've treated us unfairly. They've done something that was not of justice, not in right reason or good order. They've become a mistreating of us and they did something of injustice or injustice. Sometimes it's hard to love people not because of just an injustice but a prejudice. Sometimes our reason for not loving people is because of our prejudice or a bias, sometimes not connected to what they did, but to what our perception is or what we think of. And sometimes we can have a prejudice that can affect the way that we love people. We know that on 9-11, there was a scar that though we were removed from that incident, I don't know if any of us here were a part of the, the scenes that took place in New York City or Washington, D.C. or in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. I don't know if any of us were a part of those, but we all felt the pain of that. And sometimes the pain of that becomes so real that it develops a prejudice towards certain people that we would perceive some people to be terrorists, not because of who they are, but because of an association. And a prejudice can rise up in us and there can be an ungodly love that that takes root in us, and we have to recognize that is not Christ. There can be generations that will allow prejudice or allow something. Sometimes it's an injustice. Sometimes it's a prejudice. But we have a, a hard-to-love people in our lives with some reason. We've labeled them as those people and individuals that can be hard to love in our lives. The essence of real love is when we learn how to love hard-to-love people. We're really loving like Jesus when we love the hard-to-love people around us. Matthew chapter 5. You've had enough time to turn there this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus is about ready to set the standard, or not set the standard, but raise the standard. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus shows up in your life, he raises the standard of your living? I hope so. Because when Jesus shows up, what you thought was okay before... That doesn't, that's not quite it. It becomes altogether different. He changes the arrangement. He gives us a new standard, new identity. And Jesus is doing that here as he's speaking to the people. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Now, you and I have been in a Christian culture 
or a post-Christian culture, but we've been around it probably. And when you hear it said, love your enemies, most people, maybe, I, I don't, I don't want to assume that, but a lot of people probably connect that to, oh, that's what Jesus said. But can you imagine being the group of people who heard Jesus say that for the first time? you imagine for the first time hearing this word, love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. How many want to be more and more like Jesus? He just told us how. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Or what good is that? If you just love the people who love you, even tax collectors or corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. If you are to be perfect, and here that word perfect means mature or complete. If you are to be mature and complete, he says to us, but you are to be perfect, mature and complete, even as your Father in heaven is perfect or mature, complete. Father, help us to raise in the standard that you've called us to and help us to love like you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Higher standards require higher sacrifice and result in higher satisfaction. Anything worth achieving in life usually does not come easy. Would you agree with that? Everything worth accomplishing takes work. Those who achieve something or receive something without work usually don't honor the value of it and misuse what has been given because they don't know the value of what it takes to receive what they've got. You can sometimes receive something without having to work for it. That's not a blessing. That could really be a curse. Because if you receive something that costs you nothing, then you may not know how to honor it. Now, I know you'd say, well, what about the love of God? It didn't cost us anything. But in order for us to pursue and to live in the love that God has for us, it will cost us. There is a price. My dad used to describe it this way growing up. He said, uh, and it was his way of trying to teach me of finances early on. He said, uh, uh, Jesus is like the bank and the devil is like the credit card. The credit card says, get whatever you want now and you got to pay for it later. But Jesus says, save up now, pay now, and you can have later. There's a cost and a charge. There's an expense. The enemy wants us to receive things perceivably for free. But there's nothing that he wants to give us for free. There's a cost. And knowing the love that God wants for us, that cost that would come up front, there's higher, a higher standard requires higher sacrifice and results in higher satisfaction. When we love the hard-to-love people, we are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. The, the scripture we just read, what good is it? How different are you from the people who love their friends? Even pagans do that. But as Christians, we're to be different. We are to love our enemies. There was a, a married couple went into the pastor's office for marriage counseling. They said to the pastor, we just, we just don't love each other anymore. Uh, this isn't part of the story, but let me just say there, that is one of the biggest lines that the enemy has fed from hell. There's no such thing as falling out of love. There's no such thing as not having love for anymore. You have no longer committed yourself 
to do what you first committed to do, you quit your commitment to do. So there's no such thing as falling out of love with someone. Therefore, there's no such thing as falling in love with somebody. You make a commitment, and there was something that enticed you to make that commitment. Therefore, you must remain in that commitment because the world has spun this thing to say, ah, you just fall in and out of feelings. That's called chaos, and everybody does what is right in their own eyes. The Bible said in Judges what happens in that day. And if we're looking at why we have what we have, hey, here we are. We do what is right in our own eyes and you produce chaos. But when you do what is right in the eyes of God, you produce order. God is a God of order. Amen? He's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. This couple comes into the, uh, into the uh, in for counseling. They said, we just, we just don't love each other anymore. We fell out of love pastor said to the husband, he said, well, the Bible says you're to love your, your wife the way Christ loved the church. He stepped back. He said, well, I, I can't do that. pastor said, all right, well, if you can't go to that level, then how about this? The Bible says that you're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So love your wife as your neighbor. I have a hard enough time living with her. I don't think it's going to be any better if I live beside her. I can't do that. The pastor said, well, if you can't even start at that level, you at least have to start here. The Bible says love your enemies. And on that line alone gives a, a point and an essence that if we can't love in any other means, that we're to love with the love of Christ, that we're to love those who are even hard to love in our lives. When we are loving our enemies, we are loving at a whole new level. When we love our enemies, we are loving in a love that is so real and a love that is so, more, so much more than we could produce on our own because what we're doing is we're, we are loving people who we perceive to be down here with a love that is way up here. And how many know that doesn't, that doesn't make sense in our equation? To love somebody who is perceived to be down here with a love that is way up here, that doesn't make sense to us, but isn't that in essence what Jesus did when he loved us? He became a God, or he became a, the, the son of God who loved us in such a way that though we were still down here, he loved us with a love that was way up here. Why? Because that love produces something. We're going to read that in, the, in another scripture here in just a bit. But that love had the ability to purify and to make new and to cause things to become altogether different. We need to love at a whole different level that God wants us to experience in life. We are oftentimes not walking in fulfillment because we are held back by resentment. We are oftentimes not walking in fulfillment because we are held back by resentment. There are hurts and things done in your life. There have been people who have become the hard to love people in your life because of what they've done. And a resentment has become something that has become an identity in your life. Numbers chapter 20. I told you we'd be looking at that scripture. In Numbers chapter 20, it tells the story of Moses. And if you know, Moses was a great leader of, 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 uh, for, for the Lord. He was a great man of God. God had called him to lead the people out of Egypt into the promised land. It was his calling and his job to lead the people out of a place of slavery and into fulfillment. But something happened along the way that Moses did not walk into the fulfillment. Now, he led the people and God got the people there, but Moses himself did not walk in the fulfillment that God had for him. I want us to look at this story in Numbers chapter 20. If you have your Bible, say ready. Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. In the first month of the year, the whole community of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Zin and camped at Kadesh. While they were there, Miriam died and was buried. Miriam is the, the sister of Moses. 
There was no water for the people to drink at that place, so they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Everybody say rebelled. Do you know rebels are hard to love? People who rebel against us become hard to love. They're going to be hard to love people. They rebel against Moses and Aaron. Verse 3, the people blamed Moses and said, if only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. Which, by the way, in the Lord's presence with the brothers was condemnation. If only we would have died in judgment. I mean, they're really messed up. They're, they're, really, being, they're, they're really being, wah, wah, you know, babies. You know, they're the ones saying, we don't have enough milk. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough water. We don't have enough. We would have rather died out there when God cursed all of the other people and caused the ground to open up and it sunk. And we would rather been with them. What? I mean, that is, that is a messed up way of thinking. And here it is, these people are so consumed and they begin to blame Moses. If only we had died in the Lord's presence. Why have you, Moses, brought this congregation of the Lord's people into the wilderness, wilderness to die along with our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt? You know, that place of slavery. You know, that place where we rejoiced when it was time to leave. You know, that place that we couldn't wait to get out of. Why did you make that happen in our lives? Why did you do that? Why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us to this terrible place to this land that has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, and no water to drink? Moses and Aaron turned away from the people and went to the entrance of the tabernacle where they fell face down on the ground before the Lord. It's a good place to go when you've been overwhelmed by people and life and circumstances. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord said to Moses, you and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community as the people watch Listen, he says, take the staff, and as the people watch, speak to the rock over there, and I will pour out its water. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. God is setting him up to experience another miracle. Do you realize this wasn't Moses' first miracle? There can be a danger that miracles became the norm, that while miracles were happening all around him, it was the norm. There was something taking root inside of him. He, miracles were, were not knew for him. In fact, he had done this before at Horeb. He took the staff to the rock. But this time was different. Verse 9, so Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels. I can just hear Moses. He probably was waiting for that moment. Listen, you rebels. <laughs> That's the best impression I got. <laughs> he shouted, must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and he struck the rock twice with the staff and water gushed from the rock with the, with the staff or the water gushed out so the entire community and the livestock drank their fill. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness in the presence of the people of Israel. You will not lead them into the land that I'm going to give them. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Moses was the guy that God called to lead into this place of fulfillment, but something happened in this process that kept Moses from walking into the fulfillment that God had had for him. He was traveling with these people now at this point some 38 years. It's 38 years into the, into the journey. Can you imagine traveling 38 years with a bunch of people who just complain and tell you you should have left them back where they were? And along the way, you're thinking, I wish I would have left you back where you were. 
Moses is, is leading this people, not the original group. He's now leading the children, the second generation, because the first generation did not honor God. Now Moses is on a trip that he didn't design, he didn't want. He comes to a place and they start blaming him. The same season that when they arrive in Kadesh, the Bible says that Moses loses his sister. So he's going through the loss of his sister. And so his sister has been by his side, been a part of that. He's now lost his sister. And in that same location, they come to him and they start blaming him for the circumstances that they're in. It's all your fault that you brought us out of Egypt. You did this. Now, by the way, this was not Moses' idea to come up out of Egypt and lead the people. This was God's idea. God's the one who called Moses and put this whole plan together. God was the one who said, I want you to go and lead these people. And by the way, it was now taking 40 years. This was not God's idea, nor Moses' plan for it to take 40 years. The reason it was taking 40 years is because the first generation didn't trust God. And God said, because of your lack of faith, you'll now have to wander for 40 years. And so now Moses is getting the blame because of an idea that was gods and a fault that was the people and Moses is taking the brunt of this do you think it's bothering him I mean Moses has got to be coming to a place and thinking I've had enough of these people they're coming after me and all they're doing is blaming me and there has to be something that begins to rise up in him he's being blamed for this this situation that they're in so he goes to the Lord he leaves that place and he and Aaron go into the presence of the Lord and the Lord shows up And God says to him, I want you to take that staff, that staff that is in the presence of the Lord at the tent of meetings. Take that staff, which by the way, would have been the same staff that Moses had used for many other miracles. This would have been the staff that Moses would have carried out of of the uh, the Midian and out of the area where he was Jethro's, the father-in-law's shepherd. He worked for Jethro. He was a shepherd. God didn't give him his staff. He got the staff because it was his identity. It's who he was. He was a shepherd. So God says, take who you are, take that what represents you, and it's also the same staff that when he went before Pharaoh, he dropped the staff on the ground, and the Bible says the staff turned into a snake. It's also the same staff that when he touched the water, it turned into blood. It's also the same staff that at the Red Sea, he used the staff and the water split. It was a staff that represented his identity who was forged in the hand of God and in miracles. He says, take your staff and go to the people and go in front of the rock in the presence of the people. And I want you to speak to the rock. I want you to say to the rock. Moses, the Bible says, Moses does what the Lord says. He picks up his staff the staff of miracles, the staff of his identity, who he was. He takes that staff and he goes to the rock and God said, speak to the rock. But Moses, instead of speaking to the rock, he spoke to the people. Moses is there and now he's got his chance. I think there's something rising up in him. He said, I've waited for this opportunity for a while. So he stands there and he says to everybody, hey, you rebels, must I bring water from this rock for you? Number one, he forgot who he was. But he says this word, I find it interesting. He says, you rebels, which by the way, you realize God told him to speak to the rock. But he ends up speaking to the people. Isn't it interesting that Moses became a rebel as he addressed the rebels? Think about that. Moses rebelled against God in that moment. He became a rebel to address the rebel. God didn't say speak to the people. God said speak to the rock. Wave your hand if you're following me. Make sure this makes sense. When resentment gets a hold of your heart, you become what you don't like. 
When resentment and bitterness gets a hold of your heart, you become what you don't like. Moses became a rebel to address the rebels. He rebelled against God in that moment. And that happens many times in our lives. When we let unfair and and circumstances come in our lives, it begins to taint and begins to take away the beauty of what God wants wants to place in our lives. And we become the ugly we don't like. We become what we don't like. He became a rebel to address the rebel. And when you let resentment take a hold of your life, you become what you don't like. He's now standing over the rock and he takes the staff. He says, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? He takes the staff, which by the way, remember the staff was part of his identity. He was a shepherd. The staff was also forged in the presence of God, a place uh, made in the presence of God, a thing of miracles. He took what represented his identity in Christ or in in God. You following me? Because everywhere he carried that staff, everybody, oh, that's Moses. He's got the staff, right? Moses took his identity and the Bible says, he, he then, after he said, you rebels, must we bring water out of the rock? He strikes the, the rock two times with that Staff, and here's what he did. He took his identity and he hit the rock. And the moment he hit the rock, he identified with his pain more than he identified with the provider. He became a victim rather than a person of great victory in Christ. When resentment gets a hold of your life, you take on the identity of a victim. When resentment gets a hold of your life, you become a victim. Everything in life becomes mistreated, unfair. This isn't right. And everything in life that you look at and everything you see is all through the lens of this isn't right. He took his identity and he struck the rock. He took that staff that made him known as a leader, as God's man, and he struck the rock. You know, some of us are identifying with our hurt and that is consuming us and we're not setting our eyes on the healer who should be consuming us. We're identifying more with our pain. Do you realize it's really easy to take on the identity of a victim? It's real easy to take on the identity of a victim, an identity of this isn't fair, everything's against me, things aren't right. And when you allow that resentment, you begin to build walls against people, against God. And you become unable to love and to respond the way God would call you to love. He takes the the staff and he hits the rock I believe he was going or giving the rock. I just have this picture in my mind that Moses is giving the rock what he wishes he could have given the people. This is for you. Whap, whap. There was another rock who took some beatings on his back. And he took what was meant for us. He took on his back We love that when it comes to us and saying, oh God, thank you that you took my stripes. But God, help me to love that also that I can say, God, help me not to give stripes to someone else. It's one thing to know the love of God to quit cutting yourself. It's another thing to know the love of God to quit cutting other people. It's one thing to know God's love that keeps you from hurting yourself. It's another thing to know God's love that keeps you from hurting other people. That this desire, Moses, of course, this resentment rises up and this takes a hold of him. And God then calls him aside. Of course, water comes out of the rock, but God calls him aside. Listen what God says to him. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough. He didn't say you didn't trust me at all. He said, because you did not trust me 
enough to demonstrate my holiness in the presence of the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land of promise. You will not walk in fulfillment because you have resentment. You'll not walk in the fulfillment that God has for your life if you're holding on to resentment. If there's a bitterness. There are these, this picture here, it's pretty interesting to me that Moses, it doesn't say, God doesn't at all say that you didn't trust me at all. Isn't it interesting that Moses trusts God to bring water out of the rock, but he didn't have trust to bring the hurt out of him. There are some of us who go to church a lot, believe in God for a long time, say the things of God, sing the things of God, and believe God for miracles, but yet hold God unable to heal the hurt and relieve the resentment inside of us. I can trust God to do a miracle, but I can't trust God to heal this pain. I could trust God to relieve or or to come and to do a miracle and to do something great. I can rejoice in that, but I have a hard time trusting God to let go of this situation. And there can be Christians living with resentment and not walking in fulfillment because they're holding on to something or something's holding on to them. You know what it's like to see life as unfair. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and I just want to close with this this morning. You know what it is to have life unfair. I don't know your story. I don't know what's happened in your life. I don't know if your hard to love people around you are people because of injustice or prejudice or what circumstance, what situation. I don't know what makes people hard to love in your life. I know what makes people hard to love in my life. I know what it is sometimes that come against But here's what the word resentment means when you have resentment. Resentment means this. It means a bitterness, a bitter indignation at having been treated unfairly. Have you ever felt like something in life just wasn't fair? Yeah. There's been a circumstance in your life that's not fair. Someone treated you in a way that shouldn't be treated. That unfair means to be unkind or outside of the rules, not, not in, in good order, not, in, not according to, to God's ways. It's been unfair. You don't have to raise your hand if you've ever been treated unfairly because it'd be easier for us to say raise your hand if you haven't been treated unfairly. Every single one of us have experienced what that is. But here's what's interesting. When you look at that word unfair, it's an old English word that means not beautiful. Unfair. Unfair means not beautiful. And here's the difference. As a worship team plays softly this morning, resentment has a way of keeping your eyes on what is not beautiful when God wants you to look at what is so beautiful. The enemy wants you to see what is not beautiful and to miss out on what is so beautiful. Resentment, resentment is all in us to keep us looking at the unfair things in life. Even now, you can recognize that. There's some relationships that might be struggling. You're hard to love your enemies. Your enemies have treated you unfair. And all you see is the unfair, not beautiful things. But God came into your life and God took what wasn't beautiful and made all things new. 
God took what was lacking and made provision. God restored and made everything altogether different. One, if, if we're going to see resentment leave our life, then we need to raise the level of worship. And we need to raise the level of love for hard to love people. If I'm going to go from an unfair living, i got to start setting my eyes with worship on things that are fair. Quit letting your mind be consumed with why you have a reason to be a victim. And start letting your mind be filled with praise for why you have a reason to be a worshiper. Don't let your mind be fixed on why you should be a victim. Let your mind be fixed on why you should be a worshiper. Begin to worship. Allow the level of worship to rise. Here's the other thing. Allow love to go forth. The, the Bible says this in, uh, uh, in, in Romans. In fact, I'm going to read that for you. Romans chapter 12. I don't have it memorized, but listen to what it says in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray for them and bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Jumping down, he says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Which, by the way, that burning coal of shame is not condemnation on them. It is shame to change but it's the same coal that would have been spoken of when the angel took the coal from the altar and he purified the lips of the prophet. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the coal came from the altar and touched his lips. This is not a coal of punishment. This is or a, a, pole of, a coal of punishment. This is heaping coals so that they might purify the person, so that they might be redeemed, so that there might be a life change. Heap coals upon them and prayers. Release those things upon them. And if you want to begin to love, Here's the first thing. If you're going to love your enemies, it always starts by praying for them. I learned in college when I had a, a, a gentleman who lived on the same floor as me that one of the best ways to love hard to love people is to pray for them. Because I noticed as I prayed for him, it was hard to have resentment. The Lord began to change things. Prayer. Maybe you've had a moment of being unfair. Don't repay evil with evil. Repay evil with good. And allow the Lord to bring healing in your life. Thanks for listening. Tune in again next week.